You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. All right, so we're going to be closing out the book of Philippians. We're in our final passage in chapter 4. And here, Paul is going to talk about the great secret of contentment. He says in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So, one of the things that you'll notice about the Apostle Paul, if you read through the New Testament letters, is that the Apostle Paul dedicated his life to other people. He was all about self-sacrifice, and that really is what the Christian life is all about. It's about loving and serving other people. And yet, on occasion, when he had need, he was also willing to allow other believers to meet his needs and to take care of him. And that is really a mark of true humility in the Christian life. I think a lot of times we, if we're dedicated to following Christ, we're all about serving and loving other people, laying down our lives for other people. But then when people want to offer us something to meet a basic need, we resist that. And we think that that's actually really cool and spiritual and mature for us to do that. And yet, from God's standpoint, our unwillingness to receive gifts is a mark of pride. Because one of the ways that God actually provides for our needs is through other believers. And so, we see this kind of humility in Paul that not only was he willing to accept gifts from God, but he also recognized that God gave gifts through other people as well. He goes on in verse 11, he's saying, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. If you've been with us, all of chapter 4 is filled with these provocative statements that are really astonishing. Think about what he's saying here. I have learned to be content whatever circumstances I'm in. Can any of us actually say that in this room? No matter what circumstances I may find myself in, I am content. You know, a lot of times when we look at our lives, it's just the opposite. We feel discontent about our lives. We feel like if I can only have this thing, that thing is going to make me finally happy. Then I'll be content and satisfied with my life. And so when we see our culture today, the marketing that we see on advertisements, the ads that we see when we're browsing the internet, all of those things are aimed at creating within us discontent with our lives. And so a lot of times we envision that certain things are just going to make us happy. If I can get this thing, then I'll finally be happy. And yet, what we see is that a lot of times as we pursue these things, even when we attain them, we feel discontent with our lives. You think about the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes was likely written by the third king of the nation of Israel in its history, King Solomon. And what we know about this guy Solomon is, was that he was incredibly wealthy, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. He was incredibly wise. He was prolific in his writing. He wrote much of the wisdom literature that we have in the Old Testament, and he wrote poetry as well. And so Solomon was an accomplished person. 
regarded in history as one of the great men in history. And yet, when he, when he looks back on his life, he says this in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4 through 10. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them with all kind of fruit trees. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and the delights of the flesh and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. That's a pretty extensive list, not only of accomplishments, but pursuits that he lived for that he thought would make him happy. Pleasure, wealth, success, accomplishments. And yet, maybe one of the earliest recorded midlife crisis statements that we have, he says in verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the, to- the toil I had spent on doing it, and again, all was vanity, a chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's a tragic statement. Somebody as accomplished as Solomon, one of the greatest men of human history, who looks at this and says, It's all vanity, it's all just a chasing after the wind. It's completely futile. And nothing has really changed in our modern day. People have pursued acclaim, success, material possessions, fame. And yet many of those people, even though I think most people in our culture and society think, if I can only get that, if I can get to the pinnacle of society like these people, then I'm going to be happy. And yet what do we see? Many of these people looking at their lives, feel miserable and unfulfilled. Some say, it doesn't fill your soul. I still feel empty inside. Some say, fame is so alienating. And I think this is kind of a shock to a lot of us because we we constantly think, if I can just have more of what they have, I don't even need to have what they have. I just need to have a little bit more of what they have. Then I'll finally be happy. And yet, here are these people on the other side saying the opposite of what you think. And so, what are some of the usual suspects when it comes to things that we think will make us happy? Well, first of all, I think attaining success or accomplishing goals. A lot of us are pursuing degrees. We are working hard to get a promotion. Some of us are working really hard to get into a certain program because we think that that is going to lead to our success. And we believe wrongly that if we could just get that one thing, then we're finally going to be happy. A lot of times, what we think is going to make us happy, especially a long-term goal, ends up falling short just a little bit of what we think it will, it will bring us in life. Dan Gilbert, who is a uh, professor of psychology at Harvard, did a study where he asked young professors, people who just got their PhD and started working at the University of Texas, how they think they would feel in terms of happiness on a scale of one to seven when they got tenure, which is a permanent position on the staff of faculty. And most of those people said that they thought that they would feel a six out of seven. 
the ones who actually did get tenure, what did they say they actually felt? A five out of seven. So it was slightly worse than what they thought that they would feel. You know, the thing is, when success seems increasingly probable and the result confirms what you already expect, the feeling is more relief than pleasure. Right? When you buy something new, when you succeed at something, a lot of times that dopamine that gets released in your brain that creates euphoria or pleasure, that doesn't last weeks, months, or years. It'll, you'll be lucky for it to last minutes or hours. And so a lot of times when we succeed at a long-term goal that we're seeking to accomplish, that we're working really hard at, it's more like the kind of relief that you experience when you take off your backpack after doing a long backpacking trip. It's that kind of relief. And yet, a lot of people, when you ask them, so why do you, why do you go on these backpacking adventures for several days? Most of them aren't going to tell you it's that relief that you feel after taking your backpack off at the end of a five-day-long five backpacking trip. And yet, most people live their lives thinking that these things that they're going to succeed at long-term are going to bring them that euphoria that they think is going to last for a really long time, and yet they're mistaken. A lot of times they're disappointed. You see, pleasure comes more from making progress toward your goal than actually from achieving it. Psychologists describe what's called the progress principle, that it's actually the small successes that you experience along the way in trying to accomplish a long-term goal that actually brings about pleasure. So going back to the backpacking analogy, you know, it's when on, on one day you actually exceed your goal in terms of miles and you actually hike further than you imagined. So you, you feel a sense of excitement and accomplishment from that. Or, you know, one day when it's a really windy day and you're trying to start a fire and it takes you several hours and you finally accomplish it, there's a sense of, of happiness that comes about by doing that small little thing. It's not the end result, it's the journey along the way. And so, really, when it comes to goal pursuit, it's really the journey that counts, not the destination. That's what psychologists have found. And yet, in our minds, we think, if I can only attain that thing, we're going to be happy. Have you ever noticed the people who have uh, reached the pinnacle of sports or accomplishment? A lot of times, they're just saying to themselves, so what's next? That feeling of success and happiness is so fleeting. I think the other thing that people think will make them happy is freedom from pain and suffering. You know, we're really bad at what's called affective forecasting. That is predicting how we're going to feel in the future. Imagine if I gave you two options. One is you could have a wonderful weekend in Paris or you could have, I don't know, a gum job at the dentist, right? What would you pick? I mean, the answer is obvious. Most of us would be like, I would love to go to Paris. You get to eat some of the greatest food in the world. You get to see these historical sites. You get to go to a museum where you get to view beautiful paintings and art. And the thing is, going to Paris is probably a lot better than getting a gum job at the dentist's office. But a lot of times what we envision will make us really happy is a little, it just kind of falls short of what we think is going to actually make us happy. 
And the thing that we think is going to be really, really terrible actually is not as bad as we thought. In 1997, on like a hot June summer night, this guy, Billy Bob Harnell, describes the worst thing that ever happened to him. Now, prior to this event that he describes the worst thing that ever happened to him, Billy Bob was a happy guy. He worked at the Home Depot. He didn't make a lot of money, but it paid the bills. They say that he was a religious guy. He was a devoted father and husband, and generally pretty happy. And then everything changed that one night in 1997 where he just started spiraling. He lost 50 pounds. People who saw him described him as being gaunt. His relationships fell apart. He got divorced after this event. He was alienated from his kids. And his kids, whenever they encountered him, would say that he just seemed depressed and sad all the time. Two years after this event, Billy Bob locked himself in his master bedroom and took his life. And so what was it that, was, that he regarded as the worst thing that possibly happened to him? Well, it's not what you would imagine. He won $31 million in the Texas lottery. Not really the worst thing that you could imagine, right? Actually, I think a lot of people would say that's probably the best thing that could possibly happen to you in your life. When we think about maybe the worst thing that could possibly happen, you think of something like having an accident which left you as a quadriplegic, right? That would be maybe the worst thing you could possibly imagine. I mean, when you contrast that to becoming an instant millionaire, I mean, all the cares and worries that you have about your finances just disappear, and now you have a comfortable life. And so that seems really, really great. Whereas you contrast that then to being a quadriplegic, and you would feel like that is one of the worst nightmares you could possibly experience, where you're a prisoner in your own body, where basic things that you would enjoy, like physical activities, sex, things like that, all of that is gone. Even basic functions like going to the bathroom, washing yourselves, you have to depend on other people to do that. Most people would probably say, I would rather die than become a quadriplegic, and yet they'd be wrong. You see, the thing is, people tend to think that these things that we regard as the greatest thing that could possibly happen to you actually fall short of their expectation. And the thing that they think is the worst possible thing that could happen to you actually isn't that bad. You see, the thing is, as humans, we grossly overestimate the intensity and duration of the emotional reactions that we have. That's because there's this thing called hedonic adaption. You know, you, you become a millionaire through the lottery. Immediately, you're like a 10 out of 10 in terms of happiness right up front, right? There's just, you feel a lot of happiness because your life instantly changes. You know, imagine if you won the lottery. It's the instant contrast of now being a millionaire compared to your former life, the novelty of that, that's so striking. But what happens is that over a period of time, what once was novel becomes the new normal. And so it becomes normal to be a millionaire. And what comes with that are a lot of problems, a lot of things that you did not anticipate. 
a lot of people actually who become millionaires by winning the lottery describe how their relationships start to fall apart. And that's because what happens is when you become an instant millionaire, guess what? All of these family members, relatives, and friends, some of whom you just consider associates, acquaintances, start entering in your life because they want a piece of the action. Some people who've actually won the lottery have been so harassed by their family and friends that they've actually moved away to try to escape their family and friends. They're so isolated sometimes that they've even formed their own support group for people who have won the lottery. Clay Cockrell, who is a clinical social worker for wealthy people, says, if you have an enemy, go buy them a lottery ticket on the off chance that they will win and their life is going to really be messed up. Now, of course, it's kind of an exaggeration, right? I'm, I'm sure that most people who win the lottery are glad that they won the lottery and wouldn't change that. But I think a lot of times what we anticipate is that once we get a lot of money and we never have to worry about money again, then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to be content with my life. And really, it's just the opposite. On the other hand, when you think about somebody who becomes maybe a paraplegic, you know, obviously their happiness takes a huge hit up front. And they're basically at the bottom. But what they realize is that through physical therapy and through hard work, they can actually become more functional. And each incremental piece of pro uh, progress that they make brings with it happiness, such that the millionaire and the paraplegic over a course of years actually gets back to their baseline well-being which is pretty surprising. You know, I think about Stephen Hawking, who was diagnosed with ALS when he was 21 years old. His life was over at that point. And obviously, toward the end of his life, he spent most of that time in a wheelchair, and yet he had this perspective. He said, my expectations were reduced to zero when I was 21 years old. Everything since has been a bonus. You see, really, it's just a matter of perspective in the way we view our lives. I think another thing, too, is that people think, if I just have more money, if I can get more stuff, then I'll finally be happy. That's the thing that's going to finally get me to a place where I'm content with my life. And yet, I guess the question is, how much do you really need to be happy? You'd be surprised. I mean, the jump from maybe making $15,000 to $30,000 brings about a certain level of happiness, but actually, once you get to a certain point, your happiness or your well-being levels off. Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, who are Nobel Prize-winning scientists, in their journal, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, also known as PNAS, um, they conducted a study that was really, really interesting. They surveyed people's happiness along socioeconomic lines. And what they found was really, really interesting. They found that, you know, the jump from $20,000 to $40,000 brought with it a certain increase of well-being. In other words, people were happier because of it. And then 
what they found too was that when you get to about seventy-five to eighty thousand dollars a year, you're able to take care of your family and meet your basic needs. And so people found an increase of happiness as a result of that. But what happened once they went beyond seventy-five thousand dollars? They found that people's well-being actually leveled off, such that millionaires or people making a quarter million dollars a year didn't seem much happier. And I thought, I thought that was very surprising that past a certain point, $75,000 a year, that your well-being does not really increase. Part of it is, I think, we fall into this trap where, you know, if you're working at Starbucks, right? I don't even know what the going rate at Starbucks is. Let's say it's like $15 an hour to, to sell your soul to corporate America. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so, you know, you're making $15 an hour, and um, that's pretty good money, right? And then let's say you jump up to 40K a year. I mean, that's, that's a big difference. And you're like, oh, this is great. I can buy more things. I don't have to worry about money as much. And then you go from 40K to 80K, and you're like, oh, wow. So now I can live a little bit more comfortably. I can save. I could do things that I never could do when I was in college. And so we start to develop this thinking, this pattern of thinking that as I get more and more and more money, then I'm going to be happier. And yet what we realize from, from the scientific data is that once you get past 80000 or $75,000 a year, you're not going to get much happier. Now, one of the things that you'll notice with people who are extremely wealthy is that they're not very happy people. You know, when you think about a statement like this, the plight of the rich. You think that those two words should not belong in the same sentence or the same phrase. And yet when you talk to people who are extremely wealthy, wealth brings with it unique struggles. For example, the biggest problem rich people fall into is guilt. You know, the thing is, rich people believe the same thing we do. That if you get a lot of money, you're going to be happier. And so they pursue that as a lifestyle. And then what happens? When they finally attain wealth, where they're making millions of dollars, or they have millions of dollars in their account, or become billionaires, what happens? They experience cognitive dissonance, right? Because they're not happy, they're not satisfied, they're not fulfilled, even though they have a lot. And so they're stuck in this situation where they think to themselves, why am I unhappy and ungrateful when objectively I'm better off than pretty much everyone else in the world. Why do I still have to go and get therapy even though I'm rich and I'm financially secure? Also, the rich often struggle in their close relationships. They're suspicious that people are trying to cozy up to them because they know that they're wealthy. And they struggle to trust people because what if this person is only attracted to me because they know I have a lot of money? Also, many can't relate to their lifestyle. You know, you're at the gym and you talk to a guy who's a millionaire or, you know, has lots and lots of money and you're like, what did you do this weekend? And he's caught in this dilemma where he doesn't want to tell you, I went into my private jet this weekend and flew to Italy to eat at a newly minted three Michelin star restaurant and got back home before Monday uh, when I had to be at work. How do you tell people that without acting like you're boasting? 
And so a lot of times wealthy people feel like their lifestyle is totally unique and they can't relate to anybody else. And finally, rich people feel trapped. What some people have called golden handcuffs. You know, when you're in a bad situation, something that's going to make you feel unhappy, there are socially acceptable ways to get out, right? If you're in a bad relationship or abusive relationship, you pack up your bags and you leave. And our society says that's perfectly acceptable. In fact, our society encourages that. But when you're wealthy, it's not socially acceptable to give away all of your wealth, Not to mention, wealthy people realize that for them, money means freedom. And so they've become addicted to this lifestyle and they can't give it up. And so they feel trapped. You see, the thing is, the more we have, the less content we become. That continual thirst and desire for more doesn't add satisfaction and peace in our lives. It actually creates turmoil. This is what Paul the Apostle says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10. He says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people who are eager for money have wandered from their faith and pierced themselves with many grief. I mean, Paul the Apostle was writing this thousands of years ago. And yet it accurately describes the life of many rich people. Not only that, people who are not rich, but who are living their lives in the pursuit of wealth, thinking that that's finally what's going to make them content. Well, Paul, in verse 12, says this. He ups the ante. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He discovered the secret of being content. I mean, if you could give all that you have, it would be worth giving it to find out what that secret is, to be content in life. So many of us, are looking for contentment in our lives and we feel like we can't find it. And so what was this secret of contentment? Paul doesn't really tell us in this passage directly what caused him to be content, but we can infer this as we study the rest of his letters in the New Testament. The first is he was able to divert his attention away from how he stacks up. You know, one of the things that causes a lot of discontent in our lives is comparison. Is looking at how other people are doing compared to where we're at. You know, it's funny, with my kids, during Christmas, you'll watch them open up a new toy. And they're just so ecstatic when they open up this toy. And then when they see their sibling opening up a bigger, more expensive toy... Instantly, they feel upset and discontent. Why is that? It's because of comparison, right? We're comparing ourselves to other people. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. He says, We don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. 
You see, the Apostle Paul wasn't constantly looking around and assessing where he stood in the pack, where he stacked up. And this gave him freedom to live his life and be content because he wasn't worried about what others had or what they accomplished compared to him. Imagine a life where you stop comparing yourself to other people. That would be true freedom, wouldn't it? If you're like, well, I don't care what people think about me or how I measure up to other people, you're a liar. (laughs) Straight up. You know, I love playing this game called Club's Trump. It's a card game. I take great pride in it. I was the original Club's Trump champion in the college ministry nearly 19 years ago. (laughs) Still living off the laurels of my past successes. But if you know me and spend any time with me, you know that I'm an extremely competitive person in certain arenas where I think I'm really good at something, right? And what I always say is that for me, I would, for me, losing is worse than the feeling I get from winning. And really, if I end up like second, to me, I regard that as probably worse than being dead last. Because being second was like, you're so close to being first. <laughs> right? And so it's constantly a comparison to where I stand with other people that creates that sense of discontent in my life. You know, Michaela Maroney, who is a famous gymnast, won the silver medal in the 2012 London Summer Olympics. And as she was accepting the silver medal, it was interesting because as you watched her during the ceremony where they're presenting the medals, you know, somebody came up and put the medal around her, her head as she kind of waved and smiled and did her courtesies. One of the things that was interesting is that when you look at her facial expression, you know, her tight ponytail was lifting everything on her face except for one thing, her mouth. She was holding back a frown. And in one moment when she thought nobody was looking, she did this. What people have called the look. And it's this look, it's kind of like somewhere between just disgust and annoyance. And why is it that she felt this way? Or why, why did she look this way? And the answer is right around her neck. She got the silver medal. She expected to win gold. She felt like because she won silver, gold was just out of reach. And of course, you know, the internet exploded with memes where they photoshopped her among other Olympians who were winning gold and who were successful and in historical situations. (laughs) And the contrast, I think, is really great because when you look at her compared to Maria Paseca, who won the bronze medal all the way to the left, you notice with Maria Paseca that her smile seems really genuine, that she was genuinely happy where it seems like with Michaela Maroney, it's almost like she's trying her best to show that she's happy. It kind of comes off as a grimace. Victoria Medvik, who's a professor of management and organization at Northwestern University, actually conducted a study where she scanned facial expressions of Olympic medalists 
And she, she got students to rate these people on a scale, an ecstasy scale from one to 10. One being total agony and 10 being total ecstasy, right? And the bronze medalist actually scored a 7.1 out of 10, while the silver medalist scored a 4.8. Here's some examples. This one's a little bit hard to see. But the silver medalist from Canada is all the way on the left. And then the bronze medalist is all the way on the right. And you can tell there's, I mean, even though you can't really see it very well, I mean, the bronze medalist is just ecstatic to be on the podium, right? This one's uh, near and dear to my heart. This is uh, Mark Cavendish, maybe one of the greatest um, sprinters in cycling alive today. He's all the way on the left there from Great Britain. He won silver compared to the bronze medalist on the right. And so as you can see, these people who even though they won silver seem unhappy with their result. Why is that? It's a matter of perspective because the bronze medalist felt like, I'm just happy to be on the podium. Whereas the silver medalist's perspective is, gold was just right out of reach. And I failed. Now, this same thing actually works for wealth as well. In the Journal of Economic and Behavior and Organization, uh, Sarah Solnick and David Hennemoy uh, asked a group of people, if you had one of these two options, which one would you pick? Option one is that you would be making $50,000 a year and everyone else around you would be making $25,000 a year. Or would you rather make $100,000 a year and everybody else making $250,000 a year? What do you think people pick? They chose the first option. They would rather have half the money and know that everybody else around them had less rather than having $100,000. And that just tells you the kind of thinking that we have, that, that it's all about where we stack up around other people that drives our contentment, right? Alice G. Walton says, another variable that has a strong predictive power, at least for mood disorders, has to do with what you've got compared to the people around you. Ron Kessler, who is a Harvard researcher who heads much of WHO's mental health research, says, if your house is worth $500,000, but everyone else in your neighborhood has a million-dollar house, this factor alone is one of the best predictors of depression. But when everyone is in the same boat, no matter how humble or how lowly the quarters, there's typically a lot less depression. Therefore, it's not the objective conditions of life that matter. It's your subjective perception of how you measure up. Isn't that true? I think, too, social media sort of heightens this tendency as we see people who we think have better, more awesome lives than us, and it causes us to feel like our lives aren't that great. Even though they're likely posing and curating their pictures to make it seem like they're really happy, Whereas in person, they're probably unhappy, just like you. (laughs) The hypothetical you, right? (laughs) By contrast, God gives Christians a sense of security through their new identity in Christ. That's one of the things that is amazing about 
what God gives to us is he gives us a solid foundation, a sense of security that no matter how much we have, no matter where we think we stack up in terms of success or where we're at socioeconomically in society, God says it doesn't matter because who I say you are really is what matters. No matter what you do or how much you have, you're still a child of God. And that will never change. And so that sense of security that's independent of what we have or who we think we are or who we think others think we are gives us that sense of contentment that we don't have to look around and try to size up where we stack up. Secondly, it's all about expectations. Right? When we come into life and we have a lot of expectations for our lives, we are inevitably going to be disappointed. The higher our expectations for ourselves, the more disappointed we likely are. You know, all of us have been in this situation where somebody comes up to you and they're like, dude, have you seen this new movie? I went to the theater and it was the greatest movie I have ever seen. Ever. Maybe in my life. And so you're, you go to the movies and you're like, this is going to be a great movie. And you go and you see it and it's, it was okay. It was good, not great. You're a little disappointed, right? I mean, like the way that your friend hyped it up to you is going to be this amazing thing that was going to be life-changing. It was going to be at the top of the 250 greatest movies on IMDb, but it was probably a solid 150. But then, you know, we've had that experience where spontaneously we're like, we should just go to the movie theater, you and a friend. And then you go and you're like, let's pick this movie because it seems like it's pretty good. And then you walk in and it's pretty good. It was surprisingly better than you thought it would be. And so both of those movies maybe are about the same in terms of like quality, but it was your expectations going into it that really determined whether or not you thought it was great, right? And so likewise, the Apostle Paul when he looks at his life, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is amazing that Paul the apostle would say this in light of all of his accomplishments that we read about in Philippians chapter 3. He was incredibly wealthy. He was educated. He was one of the religious leaders of his day. And yet he says, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. And yet because of God's grace, I accept it. For what it is. You see, this is a huge contrast to the expectations that often cause us to feel discontent. Often we bring heavy expectations into our relationships, and it's crushing, not only for the people around us who feel like we can, they can never satisfy us in our demands, but it's disappointing for us because we hold people to such high standards and they never deliver or live up to them. Some of us, we're used to succeeding. Our parents have done us the great disservice of massaging our ego all of our lives and saying, you're so wonderful, you're so special. There's nobody greater than you. <laughs> and for the most part, you've succeeded at the things you've put your hand to. And what happens Throughout the course of your life, you expect to succeed, only to be disappointed when decades later you look at your life and you think to yourself, this isn't what I thought it would be like. I'm disappointed. And so your expectations are causing you to feel discontent with your life. 
you know, another example of a famous Olympian who had sort of a different perspective, Michelle Kwan. She won the 1998 Winter Olympics in figure skating. And one of the things that she talks about is how she engaged in what some people have called thought flooding. Before going to the Olympics, she thought to herself, what if I get injured and I never even make it to the Olympics? Or what if I get into the Olympics and then I get knocked out in the semifinals? And when she won the silver medal, she was amazed. She was surprised, pleasantly surprised. And you know, a lot of times when we come in and we don't have all these expectations for how life ought to be or how people ought to treat us, it makes life a lot easier. There's a sense of contentment that we feel. And really what she was engaged in was what, what some people call reframing, where instead of looking at all the negatives in life, she decided to focus in on the positives. She didn't lose out on gold. She achieved silver from her perspective. Again, this is why ancient biblical wisdom talks about the importance of humility. You know, when you have all of these expectations, it can morph into entitlement. Entitlement is the belief that life and the people around you owe you something. That because of your hard work, because of your accomplishments, you should be acknowledged and you should be happy with your life. And yet, when we find that that doesn't materialize in our life, we feel disappointed. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he looked at his life, he saw that there was this growing sense of unworthiness coupled with this growing surprise about God's graciousness and his blessing in his life. And he says this in 1 Timothy. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now what's interesting is if you look at that first quote from 1 Corinthians, that was early on in his Christian life. This was 1 Timothy, which was written toward the end of his life. And you can see that there is this progression, this growing sense of unworthiness that he feels. And yet, what does he say? But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Even though he saw a grow, growing sense of unworthiness in God's eyes, there was also this anticipation of God's mercy and love in his life. You see, if we walk around and we ask God, I want you to give me what I deserve, we're really asking for nothing more than God's judgment for our moral wrongdoing. And yet, because of God's mercy, because of his love for us, he gave us the opposite of that. In his unlimited mercy and love, he sent his son Jesus to come and die for our moral wrongdoing so that he could give us not only eternal life, but a life of satisfaction and contentment. Well, Paul says in verse 13, maybe one of the most famous verses in the Bible, made famous by Tim Tebow, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And really what Paul's talking about is no matter what circumstances I face, whether it's plenty or whether I'm in need, 
It doesn't matter the circumstances because God is greater than all of those circumstances. And because of his strength, he can make, he can get me through this and I can trust him. He goes on in verse 14 and 15, he says, yet it was good for you to share my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the good news of Jesus Christ, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except for you guys alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. It's interesting that Paul describes their financial gift as an acceptable sacrifice, a pleasant offering. He's using Old Testament language to describe their financial gift. And in the Old Testament, you could offer a worship sacrifice to God as a burnt offering. And so really what he's saying here is that when you give your financial resources to God's people, to those who are impoverished or those who are in need, that really it's an act of worship toward God, which really I think undercuts our perspective of what worship is. You know, in American churches today, worship is singing worship, where you praise God and worship Him for who He is and thank Him. But what the New Testament says is that worship is much broader than that, that it means giving and sacrificing your entire life, your time and your resources to God and His purposes. He says in verse 19 and 20, And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Finally, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send their greetings all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And there you have Philippians chapter 4 and the book of Philippians. Yeah, I'm really blown away that... Um, the scientific research that we see emerging today really fits with the ancient wisdom that you provide in the Bible, Lord, and um, that the keys to contentment and happiness are things that uh, have been there for 2,000 years, and you've spoken on those subjects uh, with great accuracy and truth. And um, we just are really grateful that you give us an amazing life, in you and in Christ. I think about my life, and um, although it's not perfect, um, I have to say I'm just really happy to have you in my life and happy to have just all the great things that you've blessed me with. And um, I feel rebuked sometimes by you when I complain about my life. When I feel unhappy, uh, it really is an affront to uh, the goodness that um, I see in you and the great gifts that you've given to me in my life. And so I pray, Lord, that you can help in me uh, cultivate contentment. I pray that you can help all of us to cultivate this contentment that Paul had in Christ. We're, we're not there yet, 
But uh, we pray that as the years go by and the decades go by serving you, that we can get to the point where we can declare what Paul declared, that we have found the great secret of being content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And we aim for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.